Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Hi there, this is Jeremy Scheinwald, host of the VFA podcast and founder of Mission Driven Group. Welcome to another episode of our ongoing series where entrepreneurs tell their gritty stories detailing the ups and downs of their entrepreneurial journeys. Today I'm chatting with Eric Cantor, a serial technology entrepreneur uh, who has an interesting twist in his background. He co-founded and exited internet, interstate, and bi-domains, which we'll hear about in a few moments, and then stuck with tech but moved into social entrepreneurship and actually physically moved to East Africa, where he spent six years in Uganda and Kenya with the Acumen Fund um, and the Grameen Foundation, Foundation developing mobile technology solutions that improved many lives. Back in New York, Eric is now with the Neighborhood Trust, where he's launching Paygoal to help those who are underserved financially and ensure they can pay their bills. It's a bit of an oversimplification, but I'll let Eric tell you more about it. Eric's an Emory grad and a graduate of the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia, where he's now uh, an adjunct faculty member, and he teaches a class entitled Technology Solutions for International Development and Social Change. He's also a uh, board member of Venture for America, and he's been on the board since its inception. And notably, he's only a few weeks from getting married to his longtime girlfriend, Anna, in Montenegro. We welcome Eric Cantor to the podcast. So, Eric, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. I, I definitely want to get to the almost six years you spent in Africa with the Acumen Fund and Grameen and, and your current role, building Paygoal. But I want to take our listeners back to, 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 uh, to 1995. So there's a little urban legend that your stepbrother called you. And as you're graduating, I think, from, I think around the time you're graduating from Emory, and said something along the lines of, hey, there's this thing. It's going to be pretty big. It's called the Internet. Why don't you moved to D.C. where he was and started an internet company that was, I think, even nondescript. I mean, I, I'm not even sure if that's like, it was, it was, it was, it was vague, as vague as let's start an internet company. How much truth is there to that, that, uh, that myth? It's more or less true. Uh, we were both entrepreneurs. Uh, this is my stepbrother we're talking about. We were tinkering mentally a bunch of ideas when we would meet, and I, was, I had just graduated. I came to New York. I actually, my first job my first job was about a couple blocks from here where I was doing a bunch of temp work and I was working at a bank and doing spreadsheets. And I actually learned a lot from those chapters, but I also realized, like, I don't think I'm cut out for the corporate stuff or just, like, sitting in an office. And when my when I fell asleep during working one time on an assignment is when I said, this is probably not for me. And around that same time, yeah, my stepbrother called and he said, hey, move to Washington from New York. We're going to start this Internet company. And I said, that sounds, that sounds great. And I said, what, what's the internet anyway? He said, I don't really know, but it's, it's definitely going to be big. And I also had that 
gut instinct because I had actually um, I'd been building computers and like coding a little bit and doing a lot of advanced you know for the time stuff on on PCs because my mom was a computer teacher in the 60s and 70s and um, you know I had sort of been doing a lot at the computer lab at school and I remember taking this pamphlet on what is the internet and put it on my shelf and I was like I gotta read this because this something about this feels like it's up my alley so when he said that I was like yeah, yeah that sounds good let's do that and then I put everything I owned in the car which was not much stuff and drove to DC and we, we kicked it off so you started internet interstate what do you tell it was an it was an ISP an internet service provider um, how did you how did you even determined that was what you were going to do, and and another thing I'm curious about is, I mean, is this is this akin to, you know, Henry Ford starting to build a car <laughs> and being like, well, maybe I do I know that I even need a muffler or I need a I don't know my car terminology terribly well, but were there the parts to build an ISP when you started? Were you, how did you keep up with technology, um, or how did technology keep up with you? You know, how was there like a what was that dynamic like as you're trying to build this company? It's a good question. I mean, there there's. Um, Things were moving very fast in the mid to late 90s, as you recall. I mean, I would say that most industries are built, like you said, first the ecosystem gets built. So in the case of mobile phones, you're building the cell towers, you're building the networks, you're building the billing services for the providers and putting out some phones, and then the real innovation starts in apps once that infrastructure is out there. Internet was similar. I mean, you know, it was a Department of Defense university kind of hobby project for a couple decades, and in the mid-90s, what you saw happening was there were quite a few technologists and geeks who were, like, into it, using this. You know, Gopher, there was no World Wide Web, there was Gopher. There was no um, really easy way to get connected. I mean, just to get on the Internet back in the day, you had to get a piece of software, which, of course, you couldn't download because you weren't on the Internet, so you had to get it on a floppy disk. There weren't any thumb drives from your friend, trust it, install it, flip a bunch of switches in the back of your PC to make sure that the interrupts weren't going to, you know, the network card and the modem weren't going to be fighting over, um, you know, what uh, values they're using on the on the motherboard. And then you configure the software. Then you'd plug into a modem, which you had to plug into a phone line. You had to figure out how to dial out, sometimes with, you know, dialing nine first and all that stuff. Then you'd connect to some service, and you had to have a name and password to get in there, which had to be prearranged, usually via fax machine or filling out a paper form. So just the at that point, like getting to on the Internet was not something you just wake up in the morning, flip on your iPhone, and you're there. That was like a real—you had to be committed. So the early adopters were who we were serving, and they were the people that were ready to— wait two days for the disc to come in the mail and then try it and always something would go wrong because they put the wrong setting on something. They'd call us, we'd walk them through it. And these were both businesses and individuals. And so it was really about access at the beginning. And on the business, that was, you know, on the, on the personal side, it was, it was flying off the shelves because everybody knew, I want to get on the internet. Tell me how to do it. And we made it easy because we were business people, not techies. Um, and so we, we said, how would, how would we want to get on the internet? We did that. On the business side, it was a little different. At the beginning, it was kind of like, what's this internet thing and why do we need it? You know, I was almost getting grilled by these, you know, senior executives saying, this internet thing's a fad, right? We don't really need it. And I said, look, I don't know, but to me, it's pretty powerful, this information transfer. And I would show them and train them. And sure enough, they'd start buying stuff, And I, which I always thought was funny because I was a 21-year-old in a pretty ill-fitting suit in this room talking to all these, like, people twice my age. And... 
telling them something. I was telling the truth because I believed it, but it was also it was a, I was thinking these people really believe what I'm telling them. Like I wouldn't believe me, even though I was it was all true. But like, wh- why would you believe this kid that walks in t- selling you this snake oil? But sure enough, they you know they jumped on board. But by the end of by the time we sold that company, it was only three years later. The conversation had moved from what's this internet thing and why do I need it to I know there's a hundred people selling it. Why are you the one we should do it with? And I know exactly what I want. I know exactly what the price should be. So the market became very educated. And your question about the tools, you know, the systems were also being built. So our first connection point was literally 20 modems strung up to the back of a terminal server connected into one of our servers. And we would service the accounts from there. By the time we sold that business, you could buy basically one box that had the equivalent of uh, 20 ports, each of which was like the same as 24 modems. So what we had on a shelf, like with flashing lights and power surging, you'd go to the closet and you'd get blown away by the heat. Three years later, you could purchase that as a single low power box that would just service all those clients and would plug into larger digital trunks. So those tools were being built. And if you look at that now, I mean the the if you wanted to look at like what RSP RISP was like today, you'd probably walk into like Time Warner's data center and you'd open a closet and there'd be one rack and it's probably serving like five million customers on the, the same size of infrastructure that we were serving about fifty with. Um, so that started to move in the nineties, but it's now it's really gotten to a point of, of um, really impressive of dimensions. So things are moving really quickly in the industry and for you. And you've already mentioned like two opposing forces, um, you know, the, the, the or, or, or maybe running from that force of like, hey, maybe I'm just not an office guy. Um, I kind of need to be my own boss. You start internet interstate, you become your own boss, but then you sell the company and you're working for, um, for Vario, which bought and rolled up a bunch of ISPs, and itself, I think, was rolled up into a Japanese company. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it like to transition and, and not be your own boss again? And were, as a guy who was, you know, really felt that he was entrepreneurial, were you, especially considering the times, right, this is what, 2001, uh, 2000, 2000, and, um, you know, things were really exciting and moving quickly, were you just leaping to get out of there? Were you really happy? Give me a, give us a sense of, of what it was like to transition from, from mm-hmm. your firm to a bigger firm. Well, Vario was a pretty brilliant maneuver. I mean, they went to, they saw these internet providers in the local level gaining traction and realized that it wasn't an inherently scalable. But I mean, yeah, sure, I could have duplicated my, my infrastructure in Chicago and then Boston, but these it was more worth just milking the local market because the demand was surging. And they realized that none of these guys had access to a top-tier network or platform, so they said, let's give you all that stuff. We'll buy a piece of the company, and then we'll go sell it to the public markets because the public markets are in a frenzy about anything with Internet connected to it, and they would pay something like eight times revenue for a, a, an infrastructure business. And Vario bought the companies for two to four times revenue. So basically they were printing money by flipping, by arbitraging, and then they were, you know, the theory was they could help the companies. Um, in practice, it was a little tougher than that, but they did execute on rolling up 55 companies. It's a lot of that's a lot of acquisition activity, a lot of integration, a lot of cultural challenges. Um, they roll up fifty five companies, and the um, the resulting public entity then uh, was taken private by NTT the week before the market blew up in two thousand one. So they basically timed everything perfectly and killed it for the shareholders, the investors, 
customers didn't do as well, I think. Um, but, you know, going to work there was interesting for me. I mean, just to be part of a – I'd been – my experience in professional life had been uh, working on a company where I was, you know, running it or the number two guy, right, because I had a partner who was actually the CEO. Um, and then I went into the biggest telecom in the world, NTT, um, where there were 3,000 people in the Vario unit, and I was, you know, running one of the regions as, as a VP of marketing, essentially, um, and sales engineering. But I don't know. I don't think, you know, I don't think of the career in that way that, like, oh, I'm my own boss, and now I work for someone. I mean, everybody's responsible for somebody, whether it's your family or your investors or your board. Everyone who's doing something, you know, material, I think, has somebody that they're answering to. So, to me, it's more like, does this current configuration get you where you want to go? Like, there's times when you need to be the person leading it. There's times when you might want to work somewhere to get domain expertise, um, like what I'm doing right now. Um, so I, I didn't think as much in those terms, but yes, like it did. Getting into this big bureaucratic institution at the, especially when the market was in bad shape, was was pretty tough for me. Um, uh, I did product management work. I learned a lot about product there. I learned a lot of how not to run a culture. I met some interesting people that I'm still in touch with. Um, and I just sort of, when I got to the point where I woke up in the morning and looked in the mirror and said, is this what I should be doing my time? And when the answer was no, you know, that's when I leave. That's when I go to the next thing. And, th- and that's what that's where I got to with uh, being an you know employee number 79 of 3,000 at Vario after a couple of years. And the next thing, you and your stepbrother were, were back at it with, with by domains, um, which is from what we'd say. You know, you said that you know, um, Vario kind of, Vario got had great timing and that they sold right a week before the, the the bust began, but you weren't daunted by the bust, right? It was a tough. I mean, assuming it was a very tough climate to go out there and build a you know a domain market domain marketplace and registrar. Um, I'm assuming you had you know no no inhibitions because you went forward with it. But what was it like to be building during that time in the tech market? Um, well, I so I went and managed product at Vario for two years. I was building some hosting products, and and my stepbrother actually went and started by domains with me as one of the first investors. Um, and then when I got through my whole, didn't start the blog, left Vario thing, uh, came back to the states after some travel. And looked at I looked at the books because I was an investor, and so I was getting copies of the numbers, and I was like, "Wow, this thing has potential. This thing's already like going to be bigger than our other company. Seems like it's going to be um, a lot bigger. Why don't I help you, you know, massage some of the finer points of the business where I can add value? Which, namely, is in the kind of technology meeting business. There were some biz dev deals that needed to be done that that needed." fairly deep understanding of how the technology of, of, of infrastructure on around domain names worked. And I went and said, I'm going to put these deals in place for us. And I, I did that pretty successfully, which opened up some other things. And then the, the move was, so, you know, that was a, that company was really about real estate. I mean, it's like people were realizing, oh, the real estate, the internet's going to have some value. So that was early activity around like developing and mining that real estate. And Again, things got hot. Like it was definitely the right time to be doing that. Um, it got very competitive, um, which is why we wanted to exit that business. Um, my stepbrother was carrying a lot of the load of just like day to day. He wanted to be involved in every single transaction, and we were doing you know, hundreds of them at sometimes on a daily basis. Um, 
and uh, we he said, why don't you put the book together and hire a banker and sell this business for us? Since you know, I was pretty knowledgeable from my various stuff about how to sell and sell into public companies and integrate and that stuff. So, so yeah, I'll do that. It'll take a couple months. And sure enough, it took two years. Um, and that was related to market. I mean, the markets had some real down days in that two-year period. Um, you know, as an aside, I mean, I think it's actually the best time to be building something when markets are down because, you know, for one, you have access to talent. People want work. Not everybody. I mean, if you look at today's market, which is the opposite, things are hot. Uh, everybody who's can get the confidence of an investor is raising capital, starting their own thing, saying, I don't want to work somewhere. I want to be the founder, which is great, but it does dilute the talent market a lot, makes it hard to operate. You've also got a situation where, um, you know, valuations are out of whack, right? And so it's hard. If you're a real business, it's hard to stand out. I think there's like 50 companies right now valued at uh, more than a billion dollars, some of which are really are real businesses that are on the private market. I mean, 50, 50 startups that are privately financed that are now. I think that's valued. the stat yeah. I saw. They're called the unicorns, right. right? The real things that really make it and really go big. And and you, you don't you see a company out of Y Combinator get a 10 million dollar valuation with like two smart guys in a business plan. You don't get a billion dollar valuation unless you're doing something that's. Right. catching on a little bit, but you're seeing a lot more of those than you ever did before. And it sort of obfuscates the fact that there's there's some real quality in there, but it's harder to stand out as a quality firm. So 2002, 2003, it was also harder to like get people interested in a tech firm, but it was out there. I mean, the internet didn't shut down between 2001 and 2009. <laughs> it just, you know, the, the exuberance sort of cooled off a little bit, and so you had to have quality. But that, we did have a quality business. I think you know, I think we probably sold it at the right time. But are you well. are you expecting the same thing now? I mean, are you or as you look at the frothiness that's out there right now? Are you shaking your head? Are you cautious? Where, where, what do you think? How is this any different than it was? I think it's. Di- I think people are a lot smarter now. I think the the, the the when the internet was new, it was just like let me write you know .dot com on a napkin and slide it to somebody, <laughs> and they're going to want to throw like a hundred thousand dollars at me to invest in. That people are a lot more. Um, a lot more savvy now. I think they're a lot more a- able to spot value. But you know, the public markets have been hot. There's a lot of capital sloshing around. A lot of wealth has been created. A lot of people want to put that back into funding the next big thing, as you know, I, I can relate to. Um, so I think it's too easy to raise money, uh, and that encourages too many people to not find something that really has a great role for them, but to start their own thing. And so you see way too many companies being started. There's a big hurdle at the kind of Series A, you know, rate, like area where you're saying, okay, we've built something with a million bucks or so. Now we want to go get it funded by professional investors, and so there's not as many of those deals to go around. But there's still, you know, those investors' model is based on I make ten investments and seven of them will probably die. So seventy percent of that stuff's still going to die too. So th- there's. And then the valuations kind of flow up the chain, right? I mean, I've seen people that don't have very clear business models asking for $10 million pre-money valuations, which is, you know, relatively high. But, you know, it's the kind of thing where if you can get it, that I think people feel like they should do it. I, interestingly, I think a lot of people actually screw themselves and their chance of success by overvaluing their companies when they think that it's – they think they're getting, like, a really good deal because they're not giving up as much equity, but it ends up kind of – biting them in the ass. It's a different, different point. But um, 
I don't know. I mean, I think there's a lot more value now. So when this thing, there will be a day when, you know, interest rates and lending, you know, climate to raise money is, is distinctly different than it is today. And it could be next week and it could be next year and it could be six years from now. And I think there'll be a washout of a lot of things, but there'll also be a lot of quality left. to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it this is smart people should build things the venture for america podcast a show about entrepreneurs and their stories so i think what something that's pretty fascinating in terms of your own career is you exit two companies and that's like exiting one i think for most people is a dream exiting two i think people start to look around and say you know most people start to look around and say i'm a genius i can do this over and over again and i'm going to be a serial entrepreneur and do this 10 times but i you know i think if you are that that's fantastic you take a a, a pretty interesting turn where you go back to columbia school of international public affairs and get a degree uh we had a master's degree and um, and you know, and then they move into the into the world of international development. Like, what was what was the thought process there, as opposed to starting over again with a with a third business compared to this opportunity for intellectual expansion, which is obviously quite valuable. But but uh, but I'm just curious how you had that conversation with yourself. Yeah, I mean, I guess I never thought of myself as a genius. I don't. I, don't, I mean, I, I look at guys like Elon Musk and people like. Um, Read, so it was Reed Hoffman and Reed Hastings. Like I was, but it's Reed Hoffman, and like guys who have like been involved. Exactly, guys who've been involved in like the genesis of many like big things. And I'm like, I would love the chance to learn from those guys. I don't. I think I have things to teach to other people, but no, I don't. I don't. You know, if you have a knack for starting amazing companies, you should keep doing it. Um. You know, when I my what I always thought I would be, I mean, my my when I was in college, I thought I'd be in the diplomatic corps, the peace corps. I was always interested in international affairs. I was interested in, um, you know, how languages and cultures and how countries get along. And that's what I thought I would do. But I found myself starting this Internet company and that was pretty interesting. So I went with it. I didn't fight it. But at the end of the day, you got to be passionate about what you're doing, and I think I was less and less passionate about the the end of you know the end of the Vario regime, and then you know the, the some of the by domains days were definitely tough ones, um, and so I said, well, why am I again? Why why am I doing this? I want to be in, in the international affairs space, so that's why I went to international affairs school, thinking, okay, I'll start over, I'll have a new career because like you get to have seven careers, I think they say in our generation. So I was ready for my second one. What I didn't realize is that there was a lot of value that I built the first time around that kind of directly translated. So there turns out that there's a great need for technology and innovation and people who understand how businesses work in the developing world and in the social sector. And so that quickly became kind of an area of, of focus for me, and it, and it continues to be. I mean, it's really the last 10 years of my career has been in that, and you know, I teach a class on a similar topic uh, now. Yeah, notably, Eric is actually teaching at the school that he graduated from, which I think is, uh, you know, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty cool and uh, a, a tremendous accomplishment to be teaching at your at your, at your alma mater. It's pretty uh, funny. Some of the, I go to these dinners, these staff dinners, and I sit across from the professors that I had, and I'm like, 
uh, you know, they're the people that I like revered in the halls, and now I'm sitting at the same table as them and thinking, how did they let me in here? Do you feel it's like a recurring theme? <clears throat> do you feel like when you when you look at your students, are you saying to yourself like, hmm, these people might revere me as I revered them, <laughs> uh, which. Weird it's to interesting. Pers- I mean, I, to conceive of someone I, revering you in general. Period. I think. I feel like age-wise, I'm closer to the students than I was to my professors in a sense. So, or maybe I just think of myself as younger than I actually am. But I think there, they seem as like a peer with a lot to learn from and, and a guide. Um, I, some of the students are really impressive. I really like. I've always liked kind of mentorship and giving people opportunities, building people up, and teaching. Get lets you do it at like a little better scale than having somebody report to you for a few years. And now I have this network of like 50 people who've like taken my class and it's like a little private little social network. And yeah, I think some of those guys are going to be doing really big things. Um, it's only been, it, this is only the third year I've been teaching. So nobody's invented the Facebook for the developing world yet, but I think some of them are working on it and that's actually what the class is for. So let's go back to, you graduate from SIPA and you join the Acumen Fund, which uh, you know, was kind of, I, mean, I don't know if it was the first with its model, where kind of, in, in, you know, impact investing, expecting a return on the money that they're investing, you know, investing with with an investment as opposed to gift kind of perspective um, in the developing world. I mean, you can maybe explain it better than I can. Um, when you got that job, I mean, it's it sort of might not have existed had you gone to SEPA five years earlier. I think, I think Acumen started only a couple of years before you graduated. Were you just like clicking your heels and I can't believe that I have a, that, that this job even exists out there, you know, where I can be out there in the developing world investing in technology? Yeah, I mean, Acumen Fund was a really interesting model. I mean, it still is. Uh, they sort of brought, I mean, I, the way that I see it is that they were the first ones that were trying to bring capital to businesses that could really help people in areas like health, housing, water, critical areas in the developing world, not seeing everything as charity, which is also aligned with my beliefs, is that I think there's a role for charity and there's a role for government and there's a role for the private sector and that role can be deepened and enlarged. And I think that's where Acumen wanted to play. Um, and then there's kind of a bigger field around that, which is social enterprise, just the, the concept that business doesn't have to be like raping and pillaging society's resources. It can actually add to them and fix problems too. Um, and so you know, that notion is still the bedrock of this social enterprise industry that everybody's really interested in talking about. And they teach at Harvard Business School now and all that. And Acumen was early on that train. And when I went through my grad studies, you know, you, you interact with a lot of organizations, just like an MBA would, but not you're not looking at Procter & Gamble, you're looking at the UN. And I knew that I didn't fit in at the UN. And I met some of these guys from Acumen Fund just in different events, and I was like, these are the guys, this is what I want to, these are the guys that I want to be, like, talking to. They're talking about deals, they're talking about investment, they're jetting over to Kenya to, like, fund some company that's going to help all these people. But that was very attractive to me, and I, I really, I'm a little bullheaded sometimes, and I literally knocked on the door of Acumen Fund and said, um, I'd like to, I want to work here. And they were like, well, who you're like some grad student, you, you're some tech guy. They looked at my resume, they're like, well, we don't have any job. I was like, it's okay, I'll just be an intern here, and then you'll want me to do something after a little while. And they were like, okay, well, guess if you're a tech guy, we have this database that we've been really struggling with. Maybe you can, like, sit in the corner and fix it for a few months, and then we'll see what <laughs> happens. And it was their fundraising database, and so I said, sure, that's cool. I'll, I'll pay my dues. You know, I believe you got to pay your dues, right? So... I said, sure, I'll fix your database. So I sat there, fixed their database for a while. It did what they wanted it to do, which was a pretty light task, actually. Um, 
And, you know, just through a confluence of events, the, you know, in, in a course of three months that I was just sitting there as an intern and finishing grad school a couple of days a week, their uh, chief marketing officer was fired or, sorry, resigned to pursue other options, I should say. Their, um, the second in command to, to that person uh, went on maternity leave and ultimately would never come back. And so, you know, they're kind of like scratching their heads going, who's going to run this fundraising department for this organization? They're like, well, there's that intern we got. He seems like he knows a couple things. So they said, yeah, why don't you, why don't you, fund, why don't you be our head fundraiser? And I'm like, I don't know anything about fundraising or nonprofits. I, I'm, I want to be in the field, like building businesses. They said, yeah, you, you'll do that. Just We just need someone to keep an eye on this and make sure nothing really blows up for a few months. And while you do that, you can sketch out what you really want to do. So I said, all right. Yeah, they took me to lunch, bought me a cocktail. I said, okay, I'll do this. That sounds good. I like you guys. And uh, it just so happened that in that quarter that I was sitting in that head of fundraising seat, Google decided to invest $5 million in Acumen Fund, launching Google.org, which put Acumen Fund and Google.org on the map. And I just happened to be sitting in the seat. I mean, I had no involvement in making that happen, but I just, you know, of course, took all the credit. And so that set me on my way to, to design my own job, which, you know, wanted to be working with these businesses in Africa, trying to help them improve operations. And you get up and you move to Africa, and you start to, I mean, first with, first with, with you were in Africa with Acumen, right? Yeah. And then... And then you and then you moved to the Grameen uh, Foundation in Africa. Yeah. So I, I designed a. I said we need to help people auto. So we were recognizing mobile phones were on the rise, especially in Africa, and a lot of people didn't have water, didn't have electricity, but they had mobile phones. And so my thesis for the companies was let's help them service people using mobile. There's a lot of ways to do that. Very simple and and easy, but let's be help our companies be leaders in that. So I went to Cisco Foundation. And, and just to give people a sense of the timing of how far ahead of the curve you were on that, this is uh, what, 2005, six. six. So I went to Cisco Foundation and they, and they got they wrote me a quarter million dollar check to build this technology solutions team to build solutions for the portfolio companies of Acumen, which was how I got myself over to Kenya where Acumen was opening an office. I was actually supposed to go to India, but they the two weeks before I was supposed to leave, they said, hey, we have we have 14 people in India and one in Kenya. How would you feel about going there instead? So I went over to Kenya, and I think, you know, it was probably a better environment for building this stuff than, than, um, than India was. So I was working on helping companies automate um, and finding that they really, they were more interested in basic business, you know, basic balance sheet issues like who's our CEO what's our product then like how are we going to improve the customer experience using mobile so I was doing that I was there um, I was trying to, to help companies uh, but it, it, it was pretty challenging to actually have an impact this is at Acumen or, or just across the board? At Acumen Fund. And then, but then yeah. you moved to, okay, so you moved to Grame, the Grameen Foundation, and you start their app lab right. with another pretty sizable uh, grant, like $5 million from the Gates Foundation. How does, first of all, how does one apply to the Gates Foundation, and were you just, like, is well, there a process? Were you just stunned yeah. to receive a check one day? I mean, was it a whole long, were there clues along the way, or did you just, you know, open up your mail one day and get a, <laughs> get $5 million with, uh, with Bill and Melinda smiling on it and waving at you? Well, so you asked about like how I got to Africa. I mean, basically working for Acumen in New York and going to lunch at like a sushi restaurant, talking about the plight of poor villages in Africa and Kenya was like that didn't really sit well with me for a while. And I was like, I, I, if I'm going to do this career, I think I need to go do it for real. So I kind of made my mind up in 2006. I'm like, I want to do 
I want to be authentic. It's like the culture I was talking about earlier. Like, I want to do what I say I'm going to do. So doing it means living in the place where the customers are. So that's how I ended up saying I need to move to Africa. And so the Acumen thing was great, great organization. Um, <clears throat> what was tough there for me was being an, an operator. Like, I like to do things. And being an investor, trying to get someone else to do things, I, at that chapter in my career, I found pretty challenging, which is, I think, why when I got the call from Uganda and they said, hey, we've got uh, $2 million bucks from Google to build these apps, and we have the biggest telecom operator in Africa called MTN at the table, and we just need someone who's, you know, comfortable enough sitting in front of a boardroom of Google or MTN people to make them feel good, but also comfortable driving out to a farm in the middle of Uganda and, like, talking to farmers, but also understands technology enough to build mobile apps. And I sort of heard that, and I was like, that sounds like a job that I'm uniquely qualified for. I mean, you know, if you've ever, like, read... A job like a job description. It sounds like it was written, like oh, they you. took your resume and just like wrote it to that. Like right. that's what that. And they didn't. I mean, I didn't know. I knew these guys tangentially. When I got the call, I was like, "Oh, this is an amazing opportunity. Let me find some people." But then I thought, "Why don't I just do it? Because it's better than what I'm doing now. Even though what I'm doing now is great." And so I did. I moved to Uganda. So that was the funding initially was to build these apps um, with Google. And so we built on Google's SMS search platform which was basically, you know, it's Google, but it's via SMS. And we, we, we <clears throat> like any good product effort, we looked at what people are doing. You know, are you, what are you thinking about? What do you, we went around to villages and we just said, ask a question. We had people text a question into some med student we had sitting in, a, in an office. And people had a lot of questions about health and agriculture, which unsurprisingly. So our first product was actually a health, agriculture, and markets SMS tool, Google SMS, that we launched with MTN. And it was like, ask whatever question you want, look for prices of crops, connect with other traders, and the content of the um, that was returned was created by local nonprofits who we had under contract and approved by the ministries of health and agriculture. So it was like a real Ugandan um, product. We actually won an award uh, at the 2010 Mobile World Congress for the product of the year for social and econ- economic development uh, in terms of mobile apps. Um, so that product was a nice splash. It was early and something that's now still early, but a lot more has happened, a lot more sophistication. Um, mobile's helping people with energy. It's helping people get access to water. It's um, helping people get access to credit. It means a lot of innovation in that, and that's what we that's what my course really deals with now. But back to your question on, on Gates. So on the heels of that, the, the most sort of promising results had really been in the health uh, space. And we ended up in the in a venture with the government of Ghana, another country in Africa, in West Africa, where the project still continues. So AppLab now is called like MoTeC or something, and it's it's a mobile health uh, system. It's not just an app, but it's also midwives and how they coordinate and pick people up and tie into hospital services and report into the government. That became a big project. Um, the trader, the commerce piece, spun into it actually an Indonesian outfit that we had. So AppLab had spread after I started it in Uganda to Indonesia and Ghana. And what's left, what was left for us to look at in Ghana, in, in Uganda, where the big, you know, livelihood is from agriculture, was agriculture. So we uh, looked at okay, th- these tips are nice, right? Our, our first search app was like, hey, how do I harvest these ground nuts? How do I, where should I take this crop to market? Those kinds of questions. Nice to have, not a real problem solver. So then we, we went a step deeper into um, 
how farmer groups are organized in villages and how people actually get paid for what they're doing. And we came up with a set of apps around that. And it wasn't just an app. It was, it was a network of community knowledge workers, uh, a training curriculum to get them to operate in a certain way, a mobile phone with some apps for them to report on how their group is doing, to get market prices, and to collect other information that we would then sell to groups like the World Food Program who wanted to buy crops. So that was the concept. And we piloted it. And um, the idea was we would, you know, charge these companies like World Food Program for the for the survey data, and then rev share back to the people collecting the data. So it was kind of a micro franchise business. And so we pitched Gates on it, and Gates was really, you know, they, the check didn't just throw up, show up in the mail. The um, the Gates Foundation is is very serious. I mean, they're they're approaching philanthropy in a very academic and serious and organized way. Um, Frankly, if I had $30 billion, I would probably do something very similar. Um, and so you're really writing the proposal with the Gates program officer. Mm. And the Gates program officer is shaping how they – they're not saying we, you have to do it this way, but they're, like, using all of the knowledge that they've gained from all this other work they're doing. Um, and there was a time, I remember, when, when th- we had launched our – we launched our first product, and the Gates um, – and Gates wanted the proposal for this second business around the same time. And so I had all my whole team, a lot of my team was in Seattle, and they were over for the launch. And they, I drove to the airport, got on the plane, and I was exhausted from flying around. I'd been in Europe the week before. We launched the product. Nobody had slept. And phone rings, and it's my guy from Gates saying, hey, I need some edits to the proposal. Um, so, you know, it's midnight in Uganda. I just, like, haven't slept for four days. Now I'm rewriting this $5 million proposal without my whole team on a plane. And this was before, like, every plane had Wi-Fi. So, like, I just had to do it. And, uh, you know, I must have done well because a couple weeks later we found out we got $5 million. And, and that was the sort of seed investment in building this community knowledge worker network as a business. So we definitely got to move to to pay goal, but I am curious, considering the impact that that um, that the, that the uh, community knowledge worker program had, how does emotionally how does one leave Uganda? I mean, you're back in back in in New York, and you left you know a powerful legacy behind. Um, you know how 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 did you make the move back? It was a hard adjustment. Um, I mean, the first thing you need to do. I mean. I left because I felt like I'd been now in Africa for four years between Kenya and Uganda, and if I stayed any longer, it would have been tempting to put down roots there, and I knew I wanted to come back and do a lot of things and see my family and start my own family and all that fun stuff. So, you know, it's again, it's looking in the mirror that morning and saying, is this worth, is this what I want to be doing? And the answer is no, you've you got to make the next move. I mean, I maybe, you know, you should probably ask yourself that for two weeks in a row, right? Because you're always going to have a bad day, but if you're two weeks, four weeks saying, yeah, I think I need to do something different. It's probably time to move on. And I'd never thought that I would be over there for more than six months. It had been four years and I was living, you know, it's not like I was going on planes for a week, every couple of months. It was like, I lived in Uganda and I would come to New York for a week, every maybe six months. So I knew I wanted to do that. So it just made it easier. And I, and I knew I had, to, since I'd built this institution myself, I needed to like have a transition plan, not just, um, you know, disappear one day. Luckily, I was able to find somebody who, you know, who's nicknamed Eric 2.0. I mean, a better version of myself who was more appropriate to take the business at that point in time and continue to grow it. And he stayed for four years. 
Uh, and the next person who's running the business now is one of the local people who I hired and trained and had a ton of faith in and who you know wasn't really ready to take the reins when I left, but she's now um, just taken over. And you know, I, I, that's up to me a point of pride is like that I left and the thing continued to grow and flourish, even though it's taken some different directions from what we had, but it's still there versus when you leave something and it just falls apart and you feel like, hmm, maybe I didn't you know, build something solid enough or maybe I didn't uh, follow through enough on how on turning it over. And there were some tough moments. I mean, I had, it was really, I kept postponing my departure because I wanted to make sure we had the right person and we didn't. We went through a few people, it kind of fell through and then the guy who eventually took it over said he lived in South Africa. He said, I'm going to fly to Uganda with my kids and my wife and we're going to spend the weekend and if we love it, we're going to we're going to do it. So I made sure he had the most incredible weekend I could create in Uganda. And I was feeling really good about it. And I called him the next day. I was like, how'd the visit go? And he said, well, it was pretty good, but my son's come down with some parasite and he's throwing up and diarrhea. And I'm thinking, oh man, they're never going to come now. But he, he did. I think when you live in Africa for 10 years, like he had, I think that's not so scary. I mean, for all we know, he probably got food poisoning in South Africa and then it just came out a few days later. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the key is, is leaving something intact. But it was hard. I mean, you know, coming back to the States was tough. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Let's talk about Paygoal. And um, I, I guess, why don't, why don't you just first tell us what Paygoal is? Give us the, the, the background. You can do it obviously better than I can in my intro. And, uh, and also, um, you know, how the, how the idea evolved, how you came together with Neighborhood Trust to, to develop it, as opposed mm-hmm. to maybe doing it on your own or them doing it on their own, et cetera. Interestingly, Paygoal has a lot of similarities to, to my app experience in a lot of ways in that we're, it's a product development effort. It's um, sort of social sector nonprofit driven, but with a definite eye towards building business and collaborating with, with corporates, not to create another kind of social social donor-funded program. Um, so the idea of Paygoal is that, uh, and, and this idea came out of, so maybe let me back up a little. Neighborhood Trust is a 20-year-old nonprofit that is specialized in financial counseling and advice for low-wage, for low-income, for under financially underserved individuals. What does that mean? It means that as a New York resident, you can pick up the phone, call 311. That's a New York City government hotline. Someone will answer and say, what can we do for you? And, you know, that, that line is used for noise complaints and any number of other things. Say, so I need financial advice. I say, okay. And they'll make an appointment for you at a financial empowerment center. So this, this is a legacy of the Bloomberg administration. Uh, it's actually in a number of cities. But the Financial Empowerment Center is a government facility, pretty small, pretty sparse. But in it, you'll find a financial counselor. Um, of those counselors, more than 50% of them are employed by Neighborhood Trust. So we have the biggest government contract to provide financial advice. And that's seen as a positive offering of the city that a lot of people take advantage of every year. Um, so that service, just like sitting down with people, talking about their budgets, getting out of debt, how to take a mortgage, you know, getting a credit union account, those basic blocking and tackling issues on finance is what Neighborhood Trust has been doing for years. And we, um, 
I guess about two or three years ago, they, they said, hey, we want to do this in the workplace and we want to do it in a more scalable way because doing it for a few thousand people a year is nice, but we recognize that you know, 43% of American households have a problem with meeting their bills on a monthly basis. So like you're talking about you know, upwards of 75 million people, so we need to be serving tens of millions, not thousands. And so the only way to do that is, is technology. So the group wanted to bring somebody in who's, who's had an, or more of an orientation towards product and tech and scale um, and also had the idea, hey, we want, to, we want this to be a business. Like we want to scale something, add value to people, and build a business. So we need someone who like understands business. So they brought me in on that uh, after a one-year courtship because I had been involved in a number of different entrepreneurial things after um, – after Africa, that none of which kind of went anywhere meaningful. Um, so I joined about a year ago, maybe 15 months ago. Uh, and the idea was, how do we take these concepts we have, all these learnings that we have from advising all these people, all these ideas we have, and how we could do it better if we had some automation, and bring those into practice. So my job's been to start a product journey, which is what I do around all these ideas. Uh, and, and so the idea of pay goal is you get paid you should be meeting your goals, let us show you how. So pay goal, it was always intended to be an internal working title. It's not really a, you know, when we're ready to roll it out, we might change the branding a little bit on it, but that's as simple as it is. It's it, take your pay, meet your goals. So I want to help you do that. Give us an example. You know, if it, when, it's, when it's live, what would the intention be, um, you know, from a user experience perspective, how would I interact mm-hmm. with Pagel or whatever Pagel becomes? So like any product process, we, it's taken a lot of tweaks and turns. It is live. I mean, we have people using Pagel as we speak, um, a small number, and it's invite only, and it's only people we've targeted. You're not the target segment, no offense. Um, <laughs> I'm taking The idea uh, is that you would... Um, you know, you come to us with with a with the way you're, you know with a set of bills and a set of income, and um, you're saying, "Hey, I can't. Um, I'm not getting through this on time. Like, I don't pay my. I can't pay my rent on time." So you identify issues you're having, and the methodology is supposed to solve those. And so the the, the methodology that we launched our beta with, <clears throat> maybe I'll back up a little. When I came, there were there were a few different concepts being prototyped. There was a prepaid card. It's an intro banking product that had some special features. There was a new method of doing the advising in a sort of a shorter format because people, you know, they don't have time for, you know, people want things quick. They don't want to sit there for an hour talking to somebody. Um, And then there was an idea of a special budgeting tool that was going to map out when your money was due in and out. And so I kind of streamlined that, built it into a small app, and I had a financial advisor sitting on the back end doing the advising, even though it, was, it sort of feels to the user like an automated tool. So it's really just your financial advisor in your pocket. You're saying, hey, I'm worried about my rent. You're setting little goals. We have you authenticate your bank account so we can see if you're making progress towards those goals by your transactions. Uh, and we answer a variety of questions for people around priorities, et cetera. So that's let us kind of cast a pretty wide net collect a bunch of information on how people are thinking about this, see how engaging them via mobile phone instead of a face-to-face session can work. Um, the next set of like tweaks on Paygogs, we're, we're, we're taking it a step deeper in terms of how deeply integrated we are with somebody's cash flow. Um, we're looking at, okay, what are the actual cash flow levers? There's only a few, right? If I want to help you with your, with your monthly cash flow, I can increase your pay. I can decrease your spend, I can give you the money sooner, or I can push your expenses later. Right. And so 
we've been playing with a few of those concepts in our app. And, and the way, you know, we, we built it, when I say we built an app, we built a very light framework to communicate with a number of users into which we can plug different solutions. So the solutions we plug now are really around a, f- a structure of setting money aside for certain goals. We're going to put the next uh, set of features on top of that. In the meantime, we, we got accepted to this cohort. So we're in this thing called the Financial Solutions Lab. Um, pretty interesting program. I'll, I'll jump in and, yeah. and do a little bragging for you. So Paygold was one of one of nine companies that was selected by J.P. Morgan's um, sorry, Financial Services Lab. Is that, is that it's, the title? It's the Center for Financial Services okay. Innovation, funded by a thirty million dollar grant from J.P. Morgan. Right, and uh, and recently won a two hundred and fifty thousand um, dollar prize as part of a competition, and uh, and is using that to co- to continue to develop the develop the product. Um, so feather in the cap, and congrats. Thank you. So it's, it's interesting what's happening in the financial world today. And this is a new industry for me. I'm really just learning my way around the kind of U.S. financial system, which is fascinating. It's actually a lot like sort of the telecom system in a lot of ways in that it's this, these big, entrenched companies where they have these huge offerings. And, and to get them interested in anything, it, it's going to be you have to bring something really big to the table. And their systems are really confusing and hard to kind of interact with and there's a lot of glitches. I mean, if you look at the U.S. financial system, it's like 2015, if I want to send you $1,000 to your account, you know, it takes two days. Right. Like, that's outrageous, yeah, right? So with international transfers, it could take like six days to get money from abroad. It's crazy. So the system's ripe for disruption, right? right. And what you have is all these fintech startups, and, and you know the, the, the system hasn't been open, right? You can't... Anyone can build a social network. Just go out and do it. You and I can do it tonight. You can't interface with bank infrastructure that easily, right? There's a lot of regulatory, there's security. So there's a lot of barriers to that. And, and yet, there's, it's recognized that we do need to innovate. We need better financial tools for people. So what JP Morgan, impressively, as being one of the big banks, right? I mean, the big bank, really, said, we're going to invest in that. So they gave $30 million, one of the, a very large grant, to a, a nonprofit called the Center for Financial Services Innovation, which is kind of an industry hub for like everything going on in financial services and and how to make it better for the customer really attuned to like financial health and they do a lot of different activities really interesting group out of chicago gave them 30 million and said you know issue some issue these challenges that are going to help americans with their household health and so they created the financial solutions lab and said we're going to create uh five challenges over the next five years each one related to one aspect of household financial health the first one is liquidity cash flow, which is what our product was doing. And they said, apply with your companies. We're going to fund eight or 10 companies. And they laid out a, a short but pretty intense process. I mean, there were pitch decks. There was a pitch at J.P. Morgan, 50th floor. Jamie Dimon was in the was on the floor. Like, cameras were flashing. I've never done as, as high intensity of a pitch. But they, they, they had 300 applicants. They chose nine products, nine startups, and they funded them. And, and the funding is, you're right, uh, 250K, but more interestingly, it's really good access to a lot of mentorship, a lot of networks, experts on payments, experts on regulatory, experts on product design. And so we're like two months into that nine-month accelerator, and we have meetings with our cohort once every six weeks or so, and it, it's really interesting opportunity. What, what I find interesting is that, you know, I, I recognize you're targeting <clears throat> the underserved, uh, you know, financially, but savings seems to be a problem for everyone in our society. Like there are there are years that go by where the, where as a society we have a negative savings rate. Mm-hmm. Um, is this just not universal and applicable to everyone? It's fairly universal. I mean, you don't have to be, 
getting paid less than twenty four thousand dollars to to have cash flow issues. Right. I mean, I know a lot of people that are in the you know high hundred thousand you know in the four hundred fifty thousand dollar salary range that are struggling for the cash, depending on how their lifestyle is configured. So yes, like right, the issues the are the, the the issues are universal, right? I got to pay my bills. The the you know, some of the sys- the infrastructure in which it's delivered is, is a little, or the, the ecosystem which it's happening is different. I mean, in the, you know, our users are generally like this minimum wage debate affects them, right? I mean, right. A, a, the, some of the power users on our beta are fast food workers. Like, they're going to get a $3 raise. That's, you know, 20% of their pay. That, that's a, This is a this is big stuff. And so... Um, Yes, the problem applies to everyone. And if you if you look at our lab, you know there's a bunch of different tools that are managing that are changing people's cash flow. And some of them are more appealing to people making eighty thousand dollars, and some are more appealing to people making thirty thousand. And it's you know income's one of the one of the worst. Uh, I don't say one of the worst. Income is not as straight as you'd think of a way to kind of classify people and what their needs are. Um, so yes, there's a huge savings problem in this country. It's something that we'd like to definitely work on in the app. Uh, there's an app in our cohort that's all about savings, just purely about savings, um, and they're having success in a little higher demographic. Um, but yeah, I mean, even internationally, I think that that's an issue. I have to imagine that you're considering the impact that this could have, that you're absolutely itching to get this out there at the same time. I also know that you're, you know, a professional and perfectionist, and wouldn't put something out there that's any less than its best. But, um, you know, how 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 impatient are you, and and uh, what needs to, what needs to happen before before Paygo mm-hmm. becomes uh, broadly available? I'm very impatient, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> you know, you do have to take it seriously when you're talking about people's finances and their lives, right? So if I'm taking control of your bank account. And fixing your financial problem, I better be damn sure what I'm doing, or else I could create a lot of problems for you, right? So, um, what has to happen? I mean, I think that the the way that these product journeys, you know, happen is you have a bunch of assumptions, and you build something, hopefully not taking too long or too much money, and you show it to the, the user, and usually you find out your assumptions are wrong, but you find out something else, and then you build something on that, and then. That oh, but that has to be adjusted a little bit, and so you keep iterating until you get to something, uh, and that's where we are. I mean, we're iterating, we're getting to something. I think that the, um, you know, of those levers that I just went through of how you mess with people's cash flow, like the getting people a higher salary, I think would be a great thing to do, but I don't have a clear way to do it. So I think that this constraining spend and moving the timing of your pay is really where we're focused and that's what our next set of user tests is going to be on so if you ask me in three months I'll probably give you a little more on dates and times but I mean we want to be building the next version of this uh, by the end of the year and, and launching it early next year and again that doesn't necessarily mean that's okay now we'll sell it to millions of people all over the world it could just mean a bigger beta right I mean everything's beta until it's real right so you know this is obviously exciting stuff and you already said you know like you're, you recognize the system is broken, and you know J.P. Morgan knows the system is broken, and you're you're you know, you're a tech guy who has a vision for where things are going. Uh, like, how do you see the financial world changing in 10, 20 years? Um, you know, what is what's the future of interaction with the bank like, or the branches, you know, that type of stuff? I don't know. That's a great question. I mean, I think the you know, unfortunately, my crystal ball was broken this morning, so I couldn't yeah. look in it. <laughs> I don't but, think anything too specific. <clears throat> trends no, I mean, and ideas. 
I mean, I'm, I think digital currency has some interesting applications. I, I'm, a, I'm not buying things with Bitcoin per se, but I think that the technology of the blockchain has a lot to offer related to transactions clearing in closer real time and <clears throat> less control of the end-to-end networks by companies like J.P. Morgan and Amex. Um, I think the, the, the interfaces through which customers interact with stuff and make it... E- I think that might be the next round of innovation is, like, is not new bank accounts, but easier ways to interact with those bank accounts. You have products like Simple where they're just saying, hey, a bank is huge, confusing, pain in the butt. Let's just make it easy. How about that? And then they do that. So... I think there's a whole generation of that coming. Um, you know, the bank model where you're really building these branches, as you said, and then having people come in, set up accounts, and making money off of lending the money for mortgages, I think that that's still the the bread and butter. I mean, the, 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 all these startups are sort of nipping around the heels of the JP Morgans. They're not disrupting them. And we've had people come into We've had some, you know, fireplace chats, no cameras, no press, no media, and the banks are not scared now, um, right. and I, and they sh- I think they shouldn't be. I mean, the, the, the Chris Clayton Christensen view is like, you're not scared, but you should be scared. You just don't know. That's why you don't do anything about it. But I think in actuality, it's not. You know, the the systems are so entrenched that it's hard to get people off. It's like, you know, credit cards are a ridiculous system. Right. Why do I give every waiter at the Le Pen Quotidien across the street? all the information they need to steal my credit card every time I buy an iced tea. I mean, that's just a horrible design, but... And then regret buying you buying a lunch before the show, you know? Well, thankfully, I, I my we, credit card. thankfully we used your yeah, credit card, exactly. so I didn't take that risk. But, you know, a lot of these products were thought of in a time and age when, you know, things really work differently. So um, I think that the forces of entrepreneurship and innovation and you know, access to tools is, is pushing to innovate this. On the other hand, the forces of, um, you know, all the barriers we, sp- we talked about, the regulatory stuff, um, you know, I mean, the banking industry has paid a lot of money to politicians and regulators to make sure that they don't let people innovate on their turf. And so that that type of, you know, I mean, it's, it's similar to maybe what you're seeing with Uber and taxis, right? Like the taxis built a moat by getting regulars in her pocket and it had to be such a great in a, such a big change that every, all the consumers wanted it to, to push things over the edge and I think Uber ultimately is probably going to win that battle so who's going to do that in the banking system right. right it's not some people are working interesting stuff but no one's emerged that's really taking on the status quo if you look at the products in our cohort which are arguably like some of the most innovative cutting, uh, fintech products on the market right now most of them are work with your bank. They don't right. de, you know, disrupt your bank. Interesting. Last question. I'm, I'm sorry we're, we're, we're running out of time because there's a lot left to explore. <coughs> but last question. You've been a VFA Invite board member. Me back. Yeah, I will invite <laughs> you back. We'll see. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll check in on Paygoal and, and, uh, you know, and, and Neighborhood Trust and Eric Cantor in a, in a couple of months as the Paygoal story continues to unfold. But uh, you've, been a, you've been a member of the board uh, at VFA for um, since it's, it's basically since its inception. Um, you know, why VFA is an organization to be involved in, and uh, and and would VFA, you know, would would, would Emory graduate Eric Eric Cantor have been mm-hmm. uh, have been a VFA fellow? <clears throat> so Venture for America is you know my my sole nonprofit involvement. I mean, I see, you know I am working with Neighborhood Trust now, so you could say that's another one. But I mean that's where I spend my days. So my 
as a board member, as a donor, like Venture for America has my focus and I don't really spend much time elsewhere. Uh, why did I choose that? I mean, frankly, probably two reasons. One is, you know, entrepreneurship is an important piece of my story. And, and I think that people should more people should get that opportunity. And, and the pitch of Venture for America is, hey, we're going to be sitting there in college campuses and taking smart kids aside and saying, hey, we know you're getting job offers from Goldman and McKinsey. How would you feel about getting involved in starting businesses? And so to me, that's a that's a worthwhile cause that we need to drive the top minds in our country to creating opportunities that are going to benefit everybody rather than, you know, no offense to my friends in consulting, but like sort of extracting value from people who've already created it in a way. Um, and maybe that's not fair. I mean, consultants help create that value sometimes too, but it, it's a you know, those career paths I've never quite understood. You know, when I started my first company, I was sitting there realizing that my friends that went to Wall Street were making like triple the money I was making. And here I am creating jobs for people and doing all this, what I thought, cool stuff. So Venture America sort of tapped into that and this sort of flood of entrepreneurship around the country. So that's one reason I just the, the issue identifies. The other thing, maybe more selfishly, is, you know, Venture for America is a startup, really. Like, I, I don't, I couldn't play an active role on a board of a large organization where, you know, I wouldn't be valued or welcomed or wanted. I got involved with this organization when it was an idea um, by getting pitched by the CEO and saying, I love that idea. And then he said, why don't you join the board? So I did. Um, so that's my VFA um, kind of motivation. And I've been really happy with what I've seen from that organization in the few years it's been around. And it, and it jibes well with the other stuff I'm doing. As for my own VFA application, um, I don't think I would have I'm not sure you're gotten an get, interview. Got, got accepted. <laughs> yeah, I don't think yeah. I was. I wouldn't have. What's that quote? I, I wouldn't want to belong to any club that would take me as a member. I mean, I don't think I would have been a very compelling. I don't know. I mean, I did start a hockey league in senior year, of, a roller hockey league in senior year. I had good grades. Maybe that would have been interesting. But I don't <laughs> think. I, I think I probably wouldn't have gotten into the VFA cohort. Uh, I also think the fact that I instead went and started my own company maybe means I didn't need the. I don't know. You know. It's a little chicken and egg, but um, I don't. I don't know. I don't think I was getting nominated for any VFA fellowships. I'm still working on my application. I'm thinking 2018. I might be ready to apply. <laughs> well, we're lucky to have you as a as a board member, and it was great to have you as a guest. And we certainly will take advantage of the opportunity of that offer. That you put the invitation out there. We're going to have you back, and uh, you know, when 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 there's a development report, we'll have you back and, and hear more about Pagel. Thanks Thank so you. much. Thanks, Jeremy. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com.